Be last. Good morning, Relentless Church. Man, so excited to be here with you all. My name is Raph. If there's anyone who I haven't had the pleasure of, of getting to know yet, uh, this is week four. We are wrapping up this series today called Be Last. Uh, in case you, uh, you, you haven't been with us for a week or two, I just want to bring everyone up to speed. We, we kicked this whole thing off. Told you all this series comes from a verse in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, where Jesus, speaking to his di- disciples, says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And, and, and he's, what he's telling them was, hey, there's a, there, there's a way... Um, that, that the world operates. The world tells you, right, strive to be first. Do, do you, get yours, be number one at all costs, right? That's how you succeed. That's the key to greatness. But, but in the kingdom of God, it's not like that. In fact, in the kingdom of God, uh, if, 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 if you want to uh, be truly great, then be last. That's the key to success. That's the key to, to greatness in the kingdom of God. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about that in the context of relationships. Being last is the, is the key to unlocking the blessing in every relationship in your life, the blessings that God has that he intended for you in those relationships. And last week, uh, we talked about your, your purpose. Be last is the, is the key to finding your purpose in this life, your purpose in Jesus Christ. Uh, And and so today we're going to just switch gears a little bit, uh, and I want to talk about just the motivation, the motivation for for being last. Now, when I think about motivation, my mind uh, goes to to my kids. The single single greatest motivating factor in my house right now is dessert, okay? (laughs) Dessert is what they want. It's all they think about. It's how we get them to do what we want them to do, all right? Dessert is the great motivator at my house. We, uh, I mentioned before, we have a rule. If you don't, if you don't finish your dinner, you don't get dessert, okay? So, uh, you know, I, I, when, when we initiated that, we initiated that so we had kids who, you know, wouldn't eat their vegetables, you know the drill, wouldn't, I'm done, daddy. I'm like, okay, cool, you're full? Yeah, can I have dessert? I'm like, no, no, that's not how it works. If you're full, then you don't, there's no room in there. No, I have room for dessert, right? So we instituted that rule, and it worked for a while, but my kids are smart, they're growing, they get hip to the game, right? So now I get questions like, I'm like, hey, you know, it looks like you haven't touched your food, you better eat that food. Well, what's for dessert tonight? <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're going to decide whether to eat or not based on what we're going to. So it's like, man, all right, we got we to gotta switch this up again. They're too, we're gonna, you know what? Dessert is no longer connected to eating all your food. You eat because you're hungry. You eat for sustenance, okay? You eat to live. And if you're full, you're good. You can go on and be done and you'll be hungry. If I give you dessert, it's just purely because I, I choose to, all right? And you're not going to know why or when. It's just going to happen, all right? So if you're lucky. And so that's, that's the new way we do things at, at home. But it got me thinking, you know, I feel like sometimes we, we approach God with that same mindset, don't we? Like, like kids motivated with the promise of a reward, or maybe parents who are so, we've grown so used to dangling that prize out there to get the behavior that we want, that, that we kind of take that into our relationship with God, that same reward system mentality. We think, man, if I follow you, Jesus, if I, if, I, if I give up these things for you, if I obey everything you're telling me to do, God, if I, if I put others first, uh, if I put you first and others ahead of myself, if I truly commit to being last, God, what do I get? What do, what do I get? What's, what's in it for me? And, and in the end, is it, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? In Matthew chapter 19 uh, we see Jesus' disciples wondering some of the same things. In fact, Peter, who is the most outspoken and, and the boldest one, just comes out and says it to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we, we left everything for you, right? So what do we get? What do we get? And the context of that question, that interaction between Jesus and, and Peter, uh, it comes right after uh, an interaction that they had with a, a guy Matthew describes as a rich young ruler, 
Okay, and this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and, and, you know, he surely had seen the miracles that Jesus was performing, seen his following, knows that he's a great man of God and he's accomplishing all these things. And he comes and says, hey, Jesus, how do I receive eternal life? How do I receive eternal life? And Jesus says, well, have you kept all the law, right? All the rules, the old Jewish laws, have you followed them to a T? And he's like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I'm perfect. I've done them all. And Jesus is like, okay, good. All you have to do now is give up all your, all your possessions. Give up everything you have and come follow me. And Matthew says the man just put his head down and walked away sad, okay, because he was not willing to give up his earthly possessions in order to, to follow Jesus. And Jesus will go on to tell his disciples it's, it's really, really hard for a rich man to, to get into the kingdom of heaven. And he wasn't, what he was, he wasn't saying, hey, if you're rich, God's, God's mad at you. He doesn't like you. If you have a lot of things on this earth, then you can't get into heaven. What he was saying was, in our human nature, it's very, it's very common for us to, uh, the more we have, want to hold on to it even tighter and to be unwilling to let it go in order to embrace Jesus. And so he's saying, hey, that's, that's, that's the issue we're having with this man. That's, I, Jesus sees his heart and knows exactly where it's going, which is why he posed him that, that question. Okay, so, so it's on the heels of that where, where uh, Peter gives voice to what I'm sure many of the other disciples were thinking as well. Okay, so it's Matthew chapter 19. We're going to jump in verse 27. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? In other words, all right, Jesus, I get it. I understand that whole thing with the rich young ruler. I understand what you were telling him, right? Put God first and be willing to give up everything for him, okay? But we, we did that. We literally left everything for you. We've done that. So what is there for us? What is there for us? What will there be for us? What do, what do we get? Jesus responds in verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Make, Make no mistake about it. Jesus is promising blessing here. There is a promise of reward. There's a promise of blessing that Jesus gives to his disciples and, and, and he extends to us as all those who would, who would follow, okay? Now, what does that look like? I don't, I don't know exactly. I don't know specifically, right? Because um, I wouldn't take it literal. Some say, is it, is it literal a hundred times? Well, then he's promising a hundred wives and a hundred husbands and a hundred, you know, kids and, a hundred, you know, like just so on and so on. So I don't know that it's a literal promise. Does that mean it's spiritual? Is it all just spiritual blessings? Are there some material blessings? Is it, is it uh, on this side of heaven or is it, is it not till we get there to eternal life? Like what, what does it look like? What are the promises? What's heaven going to be like? All these things, right? It's easy to, to kind of get into that, um, that, that mindset of like trying to figure it out. What is the blessing? What's the promise? What's Jesus giving us, right? Um, but, but um, you know, Jesus is saying, the truth is that's, we waste a lot of time, I do, a lot of time trying to think about that or, 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 or figure out that. And the reality is it's not mine to figure out at all. It's God's. It's up to God. It's completely in his hands. That's not my department. That's his department, okay? What we do know, what we have from scripture as a concrete, concrete promise, what we do know is, is that we get Jesus, we, we get Jesus. We get, to, we get to spend eternity. We get to spend forever with, with Jesus. That's the one thing we know for sure. And we also know that this is Jesus giving us a promise, 
right? So if we take him at his word, there's a promise for reward. There's a promise uh, for, for, for blessing, and we know we get him, right? Uh, don't, don't miss that. Jesus is saying both to his disciples and to all of us, if you follow me, if you do what I'm telling you to do, if you, do, uh, uh, if you put other people ahead of yourself and God first and others second, yourself last, you will be rewarded and it will be, it will be worth it. And then he says, it's the last thing he says, it's almost like Jesus burying the lead. And by the way, don't miss it. You will inherit eternal life. You will inherit eternal life. You get me, Peter. You get to be with me forever. My son, uh, my son RJ, he's, uh, he's fascinated with heaven. He's always asking me questions. Like, What's, is this going to be in heaven? Is that? What's it going to look like? What are we, we going to eat in heaven? What are we just, all these questions about heaven, which of course I don't have the answers to. And I'm like, I don't know. It's fun to think about. What do you know? This one time, um, I'll clean this up for, for church. We're on the way to school. And he says, Dad, what's, uh, am I going to have my privates in heaven? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, what are you, why are you asking? He's like, well, what do I have to go potty when I'm there? What, do I have to go pot- what if I have to go potty? I'm like, buddy, I don't know. Man, I'm going to trust God with that. It'll be all good. He Just trust him. He's got you. He's got you covered, right? But again, it's like, man, what's it going to be like? What are we going to get? What's gonna, is it streets of gold? Are we going to have mansions? Is there a higher? What's it like? I don't know. I don't know. That's God's department, right? What we know is we get to be with Jesus forever, forever. That's no small thing. Jesus says, you get eternal life, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So Jesus promises that those who sacrifice for his sake and the sake of his kingdom will be rewarded, okay? Uh, And then he reminds them of this principle, the same one we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Uh, Those uh, who, many who are first will be last, many who are last will be first. In other words, he's saying, don't be expecting the same merit-based system that the world uses. It's going to look different. I told you, among you, it will be be different. In fact, if you're in it for the reward, you're you're in for a surprise. You're you're in for a surprise. And then he goes on to tell them, in in, uh, a a pretty important parable uh, from Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 to 16, he tells them a parable about uh, vineyard workers in order to expand upon this answer. So he's still, this is still answering Peter's question, what do we get? Jesus uh, turns him to this story. Um, and it's, again, verse 1, Matthew uh, chapter 20. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Okay, this landowner in this story is representative of, of God, okay? It's important that we, we know that, we understand that, okay? He goes out early in the morning to hire workers. A typical workday in this time, in this day and age, it was 6 a.m. To, to 6 p.m. So it's a 12-hour workday, all right? He goes, uh, this landowner uh, who is a picture of God, he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This landowner goes to the marketplace to hire some workers to work on his vineyard. Okay, the, the, the gathering place for these workers, the marketplace, uh, this is where anyone who needed work, who wanted work, would show up with their tools ready to, to go to a job. There wasn't a lot of jobs in those days, and, and this was a pretty common practice. Now, it's not that foreign to, to where and how we live today. When I grew up, uh, where I grew up, I, I was um, working construction all through high school and through college. Uh, whenever I'd come back from school, I'd work for a friend of mine. He had a small construction business, and, uh, and every now and then he would take on a bigger job, and he would need some extra workers. And we would go to Home Depot, and there was always a group of men, uh, day laborers, ready, looking for work at the Home Depot. So we would show up, hey, do you have the tools, do you have experience? 
experience? Have you done this? We'd find the guys who, who look like the best ones for the job, hop in the, hop in the truck, let's go to work, and we pay them for the day, okay? So this is the scene. That's what's, what's happening here. Verse 2, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Okay, so he, he, he's at 6 a.m. He hires a group of guys. He says, um, okay, I agree. I'll pay you a denarius for the day. A denarius was the common, that was pretty much average daily pay for a, a day of labor. All right, so that was a, a perfectly normal arrangement, perfectly normal agreement. It's what they would have expected and he was happy to pay it. Okay, but the reason I, I bring that up, I, I think Matthew's language is important here when he says he agreed. He agreed implies to me um, that these workers asked to be paid a denarius for the day. Like he said, hey, I got work in my vineyard. And they said, all right, we'll do it. Give us a denarius for the day and we're good. And he said, sure. Again, that's perfectly normal. Shake on it. Agreed. Okay. But, but again, in other words, they initiated the contract. The workers initiated the contract with the, with the landowner. Okay. This first group of workers represents the Jews. Okay. God's, God's chosen people. Okay. The Jewish people who were dependent on a contract or dependent on the law for their relationship with God for their their standing with God. These men wanted to be judged only on their labor, on their efforts, or you could say on their works, okay? Verse three, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right, whatever is right. So they went, he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing around here all day doing nothing? Verse seven, because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And so throughout the the day, the landowner keeps coming back to the marketplace, keeps hiring new workers, okay? Sees more guys standing around, come on, I'll put you to work. Come on, I'll put you to work. He says, I'll pay you whatever's right. Okay. Um, now it's important to know that the, the healthiest, the healthiest looking, the strongest looking guys, workers would be hired first. Okay. So, so, uh, you know, it just makes sense. You're, you're looking for physical day labor. You're going to look for the guys who look like they can complete the task best. I, I share that to say that as the day gets, as it gets later and later on in the day, the guys who are still there are the guys that no one else wanted to hire. Okay. And, and so, the 9 a.m. crew, the second group of guys hired, they agree, again, to be paid whatever is right. They're just thankful for the work, okay? He comes out again, does it at 12, does it at 3. Finally, we get to the 11th hour, okay? 5 p.m., these guys have been here and probably got there at 5.30 because they know the workday starts at 6. They're waiting over 11 hours. Finally, 5 p.m., he comes back. Hey, y'all want to work? I know it's only an hour, but I got an hour to give you. Yes, they snatch it up. They're happy for the work. Who knows? You know, maybe just enough to get some bread to put in their bellies, bring home a hungry kid. Whatever it is, they agree to work. Again, for whatever is right. Whatever is right. What all these uh, later workers have in common is they all trusted the landowner. They all trusted the landowner. They didn't have a contract. They didn't even think to ask for one. Okay, they, they simply just agreed to work. He promised to pay them fairly. He said, whatever is right. And they took him at his word and they trusted him and they went to work. All right, they went to work. They all made the decision to trust the landowner. Verse eight, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon, came and each received a denarius. 
So again, these are day laborers, right? So at the end of the day, they get, they get paid every day. And so here they are, 6 p.m. rolls around. It's time to pay the guys. Landowner calls his foreman over, says, hey, I want you to pay him out. Listen, pay the last ones hired first, okay? The guys who only worked an hour, I want you to pay them first. Pay them for a full day's work. Give them a denarius, okay? Verse 10. So when those men who were hired first Excuse me, yeah. So when those men who came, who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So these men worked for the landowner all day long, right? 12-hour shift, okay? And, 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 and they watched these other guys who only worked an hour come away from the pay table with the denarius, and they thought to themselves instantly, surely we're going to get way more than they did. If he's paying them a full day, surely he's going to pay us a whole lot more. They go up to get their paycheck and realize they got the same as the guys who showed up 11 hours later, okay? So mind you, they got exactly what was owed to them. The landowner, uh, he, he, he uh, fulfilled his contract, the contract which they initiated, Okay, and he gave them exactly what was promised. But, but the order of payment here, I think, is important. Because if the first workers had been paid first, they would have had no time to d- develop the expectation of more pay for themselves. Okay, it wasn't until they saw what the other guys were paid that they decided and started expecting more. I think, I think Jesus uh, is intentional about the way he's telling this story and the order. He wants his disciples, he wants us, he wants us to, to understand, hey, if you, I don't want you to miss this. I want you to stick around and see how this works. Now, let's be honest, okay? 9 a.m. at Relentless Church on a Sunday morning, August 28th. How many of y'all would be mad if you were these guys? Yeah, we had way more honest people in first service than we do in second service. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Listen, I'm going to free you up. I'd be mad. I would feel some sort of way if I work 12 hours and this guy comes along and works one hour and we got paid the same, right? On some level, I sympathize with these guys. Right? It's easy to sympathize with them. They were, they were working all day long in the heat of the day. All that stuff they said was true. Right? Some of those guys might have been resting in the shade all day. And here they come, work one hour, they get paid the same. Right? And essentially what this 6 a.m. crew is saying, why they're so upset, why they bring this complaint to the landowner is because it's not fair. They're basically coming to him saying, this isn't fair. It's not fair what you're doing. It's not fair. That's a, a complaint I hear a lot at my house. It's not fair, Dad. It's not fair. This isn't, this isn't fair. I was talking earlier about um, dessert. One day, it's just a random Saturday, you know, it wasn't like after dinner, it wasn't dessert time. It was just, you know, middle of the afternoon. I was feeling benevolent and just gracious and just wanted to be a good, loving dad. And I said, hey, y'all want some ice cream? Like, yeah, yeah, it's ready. They all come in, sit at the, the counter, and, and uh, I pull out their favorite ice cream. My girls love this unicorn ice cream, it's called. It's like all these different crazy colors, and who knows how much sugar's in there, but I'm like, whatever, it's fine. Unicorn ice cream, you got it. Give them a big old bowl of unicorn ice cream, put sprinkles all over it, put one in front of each of them. Now, I have one daughter, Gigi, who is, um, she's type one, she has type 1 diabetes, and she also has celiac disease, so she's got some dietary restrictions. So she can't do the unicorn ice cream. So I get her a big old bowl, just fill it up with whipped cream, and I give her like three gluten-free cookies, set that in front of her. Instantly, one of my kids looks over at Gigi, is like, that's not fair that Gigi gets that and we don't. I'm like, 
oh, okay, that's not fair now. Pause, I'll tell you guys this. Gigi has a special place in my heart. My, all my kids do, but, you know, because of the, the, the burden that she bears and the thing that she's gone through, when anyone says anything like similar like that about Gigi, like something rise up in me, especially when my kids do, and they don't get it, right? So, so pause back in, right? So I instantly walk in. I take that kid's ice cream. I put it on the counter behind me, and I'm like, oh, it's not fair. You want to talk about fair? And I just pull out the rap sheet. Like, I'm just like, everything I have against you. You didn't clean your room. You fighting with your brother. I caught you in three lies today. Like, one thing after another. Just everything she's done in the past 24 hours. And I'm like, not to mention the fact, do you have a job? Do you have any money? Have you contributed anything to this house in, the, in the however many years you've been alive? Like, just going after it. And I'm like, oh, and, and let's talk about Gigi for a second. She's got a pump and a needle inside of her right now that she needs to live. She gets poked and prodded all day long. By this point, I'm at the cabinet pulling out her medical supplies. Got like a big old syringe. Like, so she, do you want to get poked with this syringe? Is that fair? Do you want, at this point, like tears are starting. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want fair. I don't want fair. Do you want what you deserve? No, I don't want what I deserve. That's right. You don't. Don't. I walked away. No, I'm just kidding. I turned around. I gave her the ice cream. I'm not that bad, right? I gave her the ice cream. I sat in front of her and I said, That's grace, okay? That's grace. You don't want fair. You want grace. You want grace. We don't want fair. Sometimes, if I'm honest, if we're honest as Christians, we approach God the same way. It's not fair, God. All we can see is our own situation, our own feelings, our own emotions, whatever we're going through, whatever it looks like for you. But it's not fair, God, that they got, he got the promotion and I didn't. It's not fair they're in the relationship that I want to have. It's not fair, God, they don't even follow you, Jesus, and it seems like they have everything I want because I follow their life on Instagram, so I know everything about them. And it's amazing, right? And I wish I had. It's not fair, God. It's not fair. God says, you don't want fair. You don't want fair. We don't want to live under a system where God deals with us according to what we deserve. We want grace. We want grace. This landowner is not being unfair at all. He's not being unfair at all. In fact, what he was doing was showing grace to some other guys who desperately needed it. Okay, and these 6 a.m. workers, they're not thinking about that. They can't see that far ahead. They're not thinking about what, what these guys might be going through, what conditions in their, in their life that, that caused them to be the ones that no one else wanted to hire, right? Maybe they had a disability, which was very common in those days and, and why, why they couldn't work. Or maybe, again, they got someone sick at home or a wife or a daughter that's just starving. Who knows what their situation is, okay? But these guys aren't thinking about that. All they can think about, all they cared about was what they felt like they were owed. Make no mistake, every single worker that day got paid according to their need. They got paid according to their need, not their greed. Verse 13, but he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Landowner reminds him, hey, we had a contract, right? I didn't do anything wrong to you. I've broken no promise. In fact, I've been nothing but fair to you. I gave you exactly what you asked for. Verse 14, take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Notice that the landowner did nothing to explain why he did what he did. Other than simply to say, I want to. I want to. I want to give the last the same as I gave the first. 
In other words, the reasons for the landowner's generosity were completely in the landowner himself and not in the ones who received it. God will never be less than fair, but he reserves the right to be more than fair as it pleases him. And much like the landowner in this story, God's generosity is based entirely on himself and not on us or on our performance. And we should be grateful for that. We should be grateful for that. Verse 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. The last will be first and the first will be last. This is the very essence of God's grace where he rewards and he blesses us, his children, according to his will and his pleasure and not necessarily according to what we deserve. Jesus is essentially saying the system of the law is easy to figure out. You get what you deserve. Y'all know that. That's the world you've been living in. That's the system y'all been a part of. I came to do a new thing. The kingdom of God doesn't operate like that. The kingdom of God operates on a system based on grace. It's called grace. And quite frankly, that seems foreign to us and it doesn't make sense to the world. But the, but the principle is this. In his grace, God deals with us according to who he is, not who we are. In his grace, God deals with us according to who he is, not who we are. That means God loves you unconditionally, not because you ever loved him first, but because he is love. It means you are forgiven, set free, made clean, righteous, new, not because you did anything to earn it, not because you don't deserve it, but because Jesus willingly went to the cross to secure it for you. It means God gifts and he blesses and he sustains and he protects and he provides for you. Not because you're good, but because he's good. Because he is the Lord God, compassionate, merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness as he described himself to Moses in Exodus. In his grace, God deals with us based on who he is, not who we are. There's something about leaning into that. There's something about the nature of being last, something about the posture of your heart when you're in that position last that enables you to receive God's grace the way he always intended you to receive it. The 5 p.m. crew, 11th hour workers, last ones hired, again, the ones no one else wanted to hire, they had come to the end of themselves. They were desperate and completely dependent on the grace and the mercy of this landowner. They ran out of options, so they had no choice but to trust him. I think there's something instructive in that posture. I think there's something that that Jesus wants us to learn between the connection, about the connection between grace and being last. I think about prayer sometimes for, as an example, right? I think, I think the reason sometimes it feels like God only answers our 11th hour prayers is because that's when we're finally earnest and honest enough to allow him to do what only he can do, right? If you're anything like me, man, sometimes the prayer starts out like the, you know, God, um, the genie in the bottle prayer, you know what I mean? Like, God, I, kinda, I need this. I got this thing. Will you just help me out real quick? God, will you bless me here? Will you do this? And, or, or maybe it's God. Um, here's, here's, here's what I need to happen. Here's what I want to do. I tell God my plan. I've already made up my mind what I want to happen. I'm asking for God to co-sign it. 
right? I'm not, I'm not asking God, hey, I'm not like, you know, I don't have the time or the energy or really the wherewithal to be like, God, I want to do this your way. What does that look like? It's more like, God, I've already decided what I wanted. Can you, can you, can you just sign it for me? Can you, can you sign the check? Right? And, and, and it's not till we get to the end, like when it's, again, 11th hour, face-to-face with whatever it is that's bearing out, down on you, and you're at the end of yourself, and you realize, I can't do this on my own. I probably never could. I don't know why I tried, but I got nowhere else to go. Lord, help me, please. And boom, that's when he shows up. God, God answers prayers based on who he is and not who we are. Okay, and it's not until we come to the end of ourselves that we finally make room for God's grace to take hold in our hearts and allow him to do what only he can do. In his grace, God deals with us according to who he is and not who we are. That's good news, church. That's good news. But if we're not willing to be last, if we're still striving to earn it, if we're worried about our status or or more interested in the reward than the one who gives the reward? If we approach God with our resume, asking him to sign the contract rather than an an, an open heart and a plea for mercy, then we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. Jesus is saying, hey, don't miss it, Peter. I know you're, you're interested in the reward, but please don't miss this. Don't miss this. You know what all the workers had in common? All these, uh, Later workers, from the 9 a.m. crew all the way to the, the 5 p.m. crew, they all got hired from the same central location, right? They were all in the same place. But not, not one of them walked away after they didn't get hired first. Went home, threw up their hands, man, I ain't working today. No, they stuck it out. They stayed there, right? They stayed right up until the ones who were last at, at 5 p.m. And finally, in the 11th hour, that's when they got blessed. That's when they got blessed. I think the problem with us sometimes as Christians is that we give up too soon. We give up too soon. We walk away when it hurts, when it doesn't feel good, when it doesn't go as we planned, and we take ourselves out of a position to be blessed before God even had a chance to do what he was going to do. Talked a little bit about this last week, right? Stay, stay in the field that God has put you in. Obedience over my personal preference. Do what God's called you to do. Be faithful. Stick it out. Be last. And that's when the blessing comes. That's when he will show up and fulfill his promise. James, uh, Jesus' brother, said it this way, James chapter 1, verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In order to persevere, you got to stick it out. He's saying, hey, in the middle of those trials, in those hard seasons, when things are at their worst, I know it doesn't feel good. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's hard. I know it's, 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 it's easy to want to throw up your hands. But that's when God is doing in you what only he can do. And if you pull out too early, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it, and you will be incomplete. He goes on, skip ahead to verse 12. But blessed, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. It says the promise remains the same. For those who are faithful, for those who stick it out, for those who make the decision to be last, you receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised. Peter asked the question, what do we get for serving you? What do we get for following you, for choosing you? What do we get for being last, Lord? And Jesus says, first of all, you get eternal life. You get, you get to spend forever and eternity 
with God the Father, perfect communion, fellowship, relationship. That's no small thing. In addition to that, you get grace. You get grace. You get the unlimited, unwarranted, undeserved grace of God the Father. And then Jesus goes on to tell him this parable, going to great lengths to make it clear that the kingdom of God has a totally different standard of evaluation than the world does. It's not based on what you deserve. It's not based on your works. You can't earn it. It's solely based on grace. It's grace upon grace, not human merit, but grace. And that's not to discredit or to diminish any of the disciples' efforts or, or, or the sacrifices or the commitment they made to follow Jesus. It's not to, to discredit or diminish any of the commitments that many of you have made, the sacrifices that you've made to follow Jesus. But it's to highlight that the motivation for these things is not some great reward that's promised. It's not, it's not a, a, a better seat at the table or, or a bigger house in heaven, okay? It's grace. It's grace upon grace, God's amazing grace that saves us, transforms us, sustains us, and that should ultimately motivate us to live for him. Paul described it this way in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul would go on the second half of Ephesians chapter two, all the way into three and four, and, and, and talk about how, how Jesus brought down the dividing wall, the barriers that held apart Jews and Gentiles, right? He's making the case for the multi-ethnic church. He's saying, hey, everything that used to keep us apart, everything that used to, um, uh, uh, cause you to lift yourself up and, and push others down or look down on them or, or, or resent them, all the things that the world tells us we should identify ourselves by, all those things bow down to me. And in me, Ephesians 2, later on, I guess, says, he is Jesus is creates a new human race, a new humanity in Jesus Christ. Listen, relentless, we are a, a forever focused, a gospel-centered, forever focused, multi-ethnic movement of God. And what you need to understand is the reason for that, again, it's not, it's not a fad. It's not because we're trying to be relevant in the world in 2022. It's because it's, that's what's in God's word. It's because, it's, it's because we get it from Paul and he received it from Jesus. And so that's what we're stepping into and that's who we're striving to be as a, as a church. Okay, the heart of this parable is grace. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that being last is the key to God's grace. Okay, he wants them to understand that. He wants them to receive God's grace for themselves. He wants them to lean into that grace and to live from that place, to do life from that place. But Jesus also wants to make it clear to them and to us that God's grace is for everyone. And everyone means anyone that would put their faith, that would choose to put their trust in Jesus Christ. The landowner represents God. The, the, the first group of workers represents the Jewish people who, who, for their entire history, were trying to earn it, 
we're, we're, we're on this works-based system, okay, who thought we were chosen and we are above everyone else, but even amongst themselves were deciding who was better and who was greater and who was... Jesus says, no, it's grace. I'm doing away with all that. And these later workers represent the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans, the Samaritans, everyone else that Jesus grafted into the family of God and says, we are one now. One church under the name of Jesus. One people united in Jesus Christ. That's what defines us. That's who we are. And so when Jesus ends this parable by saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, he's saying, don't miss it. Don't miss it. It's about grace. It's not about performance. And my grace is for everyone. It's not going to look what you look like, look what you think it looks like. Being last is the key to God's grace. It's the key to understanding grace. It's the key to receiving grace. It's the, it's the key to giving grace. Being last is, is the key to God's grace. And God's grace is the key to eternal life. I don't think it's a coincidence or an accident that it was Peter who, who asked Jesus this question, who he's directing this whole thing to. It's for everyone, but he's talking directly to Peter, right? The same Peter we've talked about throughout this series where uh, Peter was the one who, who boldly stated, Lord, I would never turn my back on you. I would never leave you, Jesus. I'm ride or die for you, Jesus. Right up until the point where Jesus was gonna die, then he turned his back on him three times. It's that Peter now. Who Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus shows up to find Peter. And where does he find him? Back at his old life. He's on a boat fishing, doing what he used to do before he met Jesus. Jesus shows up on the shore and, uh, you know, throws him another miracle just for good measure. I think he catches like 153 fish and he pulls him in. He says, come on in and see me. And Peter comes in and, and, and Jesus has a fire going on the beach and he, and he grabs a plate and he fries him up some fish and he's like, let's have breakfast. And then he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, and feed my sheep. He asks him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, of course I love you. Then feed my sheep. Jesus asks him a third time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, this time, Peter's exactly, you don't know what, Jesus, you know me, you know my heart, you know everything about me, you know that I love you, Lord. Jesus says, go tend to my sheep. Again, he denied him three hours, I mean, three times before that, right? This is, again, a picture of Jesus's grace. He's restoring him. He asked him the question three times because he denied him three times. He's restoring him. He's saying, hey, Jesus, hey, Peter, I knew you were going to do that. Guess what? My grace is still for you. In my grace, I restore you. Stop feeling sorry for yourselves. Don't go back to your old life. I called you out of that. You are Peter of whom I said on this rock, I will build my church. That's who you are because I said so, not because you ever did anything to earn it. I knew you'd mess up, but guess what? Get up. My grace is for you. So now that you understand it, receive it because we got work to do. Go out there and give it away. Feed my sheep. I think the same message Jesus came back to tell Peter is the one he wants us to receive. It's grace. I don't care where you are on that whole, that whole spectrum. Never understood it, never received it, don't know what it looks like. What is grace? Jesus came to explain. It's all about grace. You can never earn it. It's based on me, not you, and I'm pouring it out. Just trust me. I, I received it before. I was living for you. I was doing so good, and then I messed up, and I went back to my old ways, and I went back to my sin, and now I'm like, 
getting further and further and further from you, Jesus. And he's like, no, 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 there's no need for that. It's grace. You can't outrun it. You can't outsin it. Remember who I am. It's based on me, not you. Get up. I've restored you. Once you receive that grace, get out there and give it away because there's other people who don't know about it. There's other people who don't understand it. There's other people who've never received it. That's what I've called you to do. What would it look like for us to embrace that truth, Relentless? What would it look like for us to receive that grace for ourselves and never let go of it? Let it fill you, encourage you, motivate you to the point that you can't help but go out and give it away to others. What would it look like for us to truly be last? I think that's what God's calling us to do. I think that's who he's calling us to be. Would y'all pray with me? Jesus, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the grace upon grace that you continue to pour out on me personally, God, on this, on this church, on all, of, on all of your children. Lord, we're so, so grateful. God, I just, I pray for, for everyone in the room, God, um, God, and all the people that they're going to come into contact with, their families and, and those who, that they have influence with. God, I just, I pray your grace would become real. I pray you would help us to understand it more and more each day. I pray it would fill us, God, to the point of overflowing. Once we receive it, God, that we would never let it go and that we would be empowered and emboldened and encouraged to go out and share it with others, God. Help us to be last, like you were last, Lord. And we pray that would have an impact on every, on every family, every community, every, every person, God, that we, that we come into contact with. Lord, we love you so much. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Be last, church. I love y'all. Have a good week. We'll see you next Sunday.